0: Chapter 2. Deem Hain of the Mountain They'll be returning, not to fear, the old crone assured the child. But what if they don't? the girl asked in an even and clear-minded tone that belied her age, for she was only then a few months past her third birthday. She looked up at the older woman and locked her eyes and gave a shrug as if to simply accept the possibility. The crone smiled down at her, which elicited a grin in response. It was hard to tell with this little one. She had a slightly crooked jaw, the right side of her mouth a bit lower than the left, and the asymmetry became particularly apparent whenever she smiled, and so every smile seemed to smirk, and made it seem as if the child had a lot more going on behind the grin than simple merriment. The crone nodded, thinking that aspect quite appropriate for young Aeolin, if she could even be rightly called young Aeolin. This one was wise and perceptive beyond her years, possessed of an old soul and a calculating mind. Her large eyes were beyond brown, were black, like the thick wavy hair bouncing about her shoulders, and anyone who took the moment to look deeply into those inky orbs would glimpse their own reflection through a turned prism. Some of the Uskar tribe didn't much like that feeling of those reflecting eyes, for the child's smirking glance sometimes provoked a feeling that the little one was judging them, or perhaps it was simply because they did not like what they saw. The crone, on the other hand, secure in the way she lived her life, had come to truly appreciate this different child. They will, child. They're always to return. The black smoke from the bonfire curled into the air more thinly now, as the once great flames settled into a hive of angry eyes. The tribe's witches, who had been dancing fervently as the sacrifices burned, slowed their movements in graceful and coordinated fashion, and now stood in place, swaying gently, each whispering prayers for the success of the war party. Outside the circle of witches, the warrior men milled about, no longer entranced by the magical dance. Some sat and shared drinks, relating stories of previous battles, while others preferred a solemn and solitary preparation. Winding sap-soaked cloths about the shafts of their war spears, or wrapping their hands and fingers with treated strips that would offer limited protection from the cut of a blade or the punch of a club they performed their acts methodically, using the movements to bring them to meditation and a place of quiet readiness one warrior in particular paid very close attention barely twenty ta'a league had been granted the honor of leading this war party on this most important raid a position usually reserved for men ten years as elder or even twice his age. But he had earned it, he knew. He had been down the mountain on such raids and all about the mountain on hunts since his fifteenth summer, and had distinguished himself with his ferocity and fearlessness each and every time. Now, finally, it was his turn to lead. He would finally garner the glories of all of those successes he had helped the tribe achieve for five years." On a sudden and sharp call from their leader, the dancing witches stopped their swaying and held perfectly still. All movement outside their ring halted as well, all eyes focusing on the women in their almost sheer plain white shifts, and conversations became whispered prayers. As one, so practiced that it seemed as if on command, the witches bowed low to the smoldering embers of the dying fire, then turned away, standing perfectly straight, arms at their sides, eyes closed. The whispers ceased and the warrior men rose dropping their weapons their drinks anything else they held they waited silently until all were in place taelig glanced from man to man studying scrutinizing trying to determine the weakest of those he would lead this day trying to determine those most likely to let him down and cost him his proper due the strong men wore fear on their faces little aeolin recognized and was surprised by that even though she had seen this before. She had heard the cries of pain and seen the grimaces as the warriors completed the ritual. The child remembered what was coming, and so did the strong men. And for all of their outward bluster, for all of their grim determination, for all of their courage, and even participating in this ritual, there was within each a measure of fear. She heard a sharp whistle and turned towards the tribe's greatest woman, Marin, who was Usgar Rigin, The witches of the coven stepped farther out from the hub of their circle, opening the way for the warriors, who as one approached the dying bonfire. Aelin could see the slightest of hesitance in their steps, near universal among the group, indeed in all but one of the men, a tall and long-haired giant with fierce eyes and thick sinewy muscles. They didn't want to do this, but neither did they shy. Whenever one seemed to falter he looked at the bravest man, the tall man, young and strong. The men formed a ring around the fire. Each lifted his right arm out to the side and placed it on the left shoulder of the warrior beside him. And when the circle was complete, the men bent forward and sent their left hands into the embers, reaching for the glowing crystals, red and blue and violet and shining with an angry inner light. Out came the hands, trembling under the burns of the crystals, the men standing and trying to hold perfectly still, and trying not to cry out, and trying, most of all, not to drop the hot treasures. Ailin got a slight whiff of an awful smell, though she didn't yet recognize it as the smell of burning flesh. One man groaned, another cried out, a crystal fell to the ground. Another man went to one knee, driven down with with agony. Now it was more than a slight whiff, And all about the fire, people crinkled their faces, covered their noses, even turned away. It was a mark of honor to take up the blessed crystals without cries of pain, but many of the men could not contain themselves, and several short outbursts sounded, followed by a longer tirade of cursing from a young raider. Tealig grimaced and gritted his teeth, but would allow no sound to escape his lips. In defiance, he tightened all of his muscles, his chest rippling, his arms locking, nor did he bounce the crystal he had taken from the pyre in his hand to try to lessen the burn. He sent his thoughts out from his body to another place, another focus, that he could ignore the fiery pain. He thought of his first kill, from his first raid, an ugly lakeman whose head was shaped into two huge humps. Tailig remembered the look in the lakeman's eyes when he, barely a man, had twisted the spear in his enemy's chest. Tailig had watched the life spirit flee the man's body so vividly, so clearly, the light of life winking out in the ugly man's blue eyes. What a fight it had been. For some reason, he could not then understand the magic in Tailig's blessed spear tip had failed him, and so unexpectedly that he had been caught off his guard and nearly killed by the lakeman's long knife. But he had recovered and reposted and scored a mortal blow. With his free hand, Te'a held fast the man's weapon arm by the wrist, and as he let the dead man fall away, he pulled from the wrist a copper cuff, set with a pale orange stone, spangled in purple. Almost immediately upon taking the item, Te'a had sensed its power, a power so similar to the blessings the witches placed upon their crystalline spear tips. He had broke that small amethyst-studded sunstone from the large bracelet and hidden it away, and still kept it secret these five years later. Without thinking, his free hand moved toward the little pocket he had stitched into his breeches, just in front of his right hip. He wished that strange stone could ease his pain now, but no, these were the fires of burned wood, not the magical flames of a crystal-created fireball. Maren whistled a second time, and the witches turned about and began to sing. The warriors of the raiding party looked to Te and he met their desperate stares with a wicked smile. He closed his hand tighter on the crystal he held and refused to so much as grimace at the pain. So much was he enjoying the pleading stares, the begging from the other warriors. Finally, he nodded, and the men ran to the buckets of water on the outer perimeter and plunged in their burned hands and the hot crystals. Te Alig, though, took his time, walking calmly to his pail, and dropping in the crystal from on high. Then he paused and looked around, smiling against the burning pain, and letting everyone see him before finally plunging his hand. He was the first to leave the comfort of the cool water, too, moving to his spear to set the blessed crystalline tip. He fixed his judgmental stare on any lagging warrior. The witches would not heal the burns of any warrior until every spear was completed. Finally, it was done and so the raid was considered blessed. The warriors moved to their assigned witch for healing, Tealig alone to the Uskar Rikin. He pointedly did not look her in the eye when she cast her healing magic upon his burned hand. He refused to acknowledge her at all, and moved off into the shadows with his war party. They could have set off right then, but Tealig held them to watch the ending of the ceremony. A whistle from the darkness brought forth the tribe's dozen slaves, the Umhas, the monsters with misshapen heads. Aeolin wrapped her arm around the crone's leg and pulled herself closer. She didn't want to look at these ugly creatures, but she couldn't turn her eyes away. They were mostly human in appearance, entirely so actually, except for their strangely bent or stretched skulls. Several had grossly elongated heads, huge and conical. Three others were even worse, with skulls that protruded upward both left and right like blunted, hairy horns. This trio of young Umhas had been captured the previous year, from one of the most celebrated raids in Usgar memory. Another, the youngest, wasn't older than Aelin, and was cursed with a forehead that rose up far too high and bent sharply to the right the umhas collected armloads of kindling comprised of mostly thin long branches and rushed to drop them outside the perimeter of the dying bonfire then they scrambled away into the darkness towards the pine grove that housed them in the summer months chased by the hateful glares of the tribe the witches stepped forward, encircling the low-burning fire once more, and collected the kindling as the Usgar Rikin produced her mighty scepter, a crystalline cylinder that appeared to be made of starlight, with a line of red shot through it within. Mirren closed her eyes and hugged the scepter close, and began to glow, her body encased in a divine shroud of white light. She stepped onto the bonfire, ignoring the flares of flame caused by her bare feet. Unbothered, she curled down into a ball. The witches lay their kindling atop her and all about her and stepped back, and began again their swaying, hypnotic dance and quiet song. Ailin heard the Uskar Rikin's chant from under the pile, and so, she shouldn't have been surprised. But she still jumped when the bonfire exploded, flames engulfing the new kindling immediately, and lifting mightily into the night sky with a sudden roar and a wave of heat that washed over everyone in the encampment. The witches danced wildly again, chanting with full throat. This time, they were singing their goodbyes to the warriors. Little Aeolin had been promised that she would learn this song soon, and many other songs, and that perhaps she would be strong enough to join this part of the ritual in a few years' time, as many outside the ring of witches were also singing. The girl jumped again when Marin stood up suddenly amidst the flames, her arms lifted into the heavens, her scepter glowing with fiery reflection, She floated up into the air above the fire. How glorious she seemed. How powerful. Above the fires and above them all. Marin held that pose, floating in the air above the fire for a long while, until the song drifted away and melted into the night like the Uskar warriors. Will they bring things back? asked the entranced girl, turning to the crone. Oh yes, child, they will bring many things, answered the crone. Darker days close in and will be needing to last through the cold blow. The girl nodded silently. She was young, but she already knew to fear the winter up here on this great mountain. She looked around at the village a few dozen structures of conical tents that had been fashioned of a thin, angled pine skeleton overlaid with elk hide, sticking up from the already snow-covered ground. She understood what was coming next, though she didn't really remember it from the previous year and only knew because the old crone had reminded her many times over. The Usgar tribe would not sit idly while the raiding party left the mountain in the hunt for supplies to last through the brutal cold. Before the raiders returned, the village would be moved from the summer camp to the sacred winter plateau. A shiver ran down the girl's back, just thinking about that place. Not a shiver of fear, nor of cold, but of excitement. Despite its location high on the side of the mountain, the sacred plateau was always warm, even in the midst of the fiercest of blizzards. Two open pits tunneled into the depths of the mountain, and the heat radiating from them made fires unnecessary, other than for light or for cooking. A stream burbled past unfrozen clean and fresh to the edge of the plateau. The girl had peeked over that edge the previous winter, expecting to see a waterfall. Instead, she saw the water turn to cold white ice as soon as it crossed the edge of the plateau frozen almost instantly in a spray of snowy crystal flakes. She had found that thoroughly enchanting. But even anticipation of these magical trappings did not fully explain the child's giddiness. Something about that winter home simply resonated with her, made her hair stand on end in the best possible way. Why can't we live on the winter plateau all year long, she asked. The crone laughed, her grating, wheezing snicker, one that mocked all questions with its surety. "'Tis a sacred place,' she explained, "'and not for the first time with this precious Aeolin. "'One mustn't stay there too long, or sure, you'll be driven mad. "'But the Usgar Forfok lives there,' the never-satisfied child protested. "'Aye, and so the Elder is quite mad, he is,' the Crone said. "'She burst out snickering and chortling again, "'but the laugh quickly faded into a cough. "'Her demeanor changed instantly, and the Crone cast a stern look at Aolin. "'Do no repeat that,' she warned harshly. She extended a gnarled finger at the girl menacingly. Do no-er-repeat-that. Aeolin nodded her assent, but found herself more curious than afraid of the woman's sudden demeanor change. The crone looked as if she was about to speak again, probably to repeat her warning, but a low chanting filled the air and the old woman fell silent. Aeolin looked back to the roaring barn fire where the gathered witches had stopped dancing. Then, as Merin floated from above the blazing fire and slowly lowered to the ground, the witches began singing the last of the sacred chants, this one in the Old Tongue. Aelin knew these sounds well, but not the words, for the Old Tongue was the sole province of the coven and was not typically spoken except in these few public rituals. Naka siagam farlach, <laughs> ver germana vaban Omnithas, firerock Eschima, Hanand. The crone, who knew the old tongue well, although she had never been in the coven, translated, Return to me with bounty, for the winter is long, and sure, I'll grow cold without you. Two dozen warriors of the tribe set off down the mountain, the final and most important raid before the deep snows closed the high passes. The chanting of the thirteen witches continued long after the men were out of sight, but the other men and women, witnessing the event, scurried about as soon as their warriors were lost to the darkness, breaking down the pine and hide tents, preparing them for the litters, and would be dragged up the mountainside and off to the north a bit, to the sacred winter home of the Uskar. The uskar reeking called out above the song, and from the shadows came the primary litter bringers, the Umhas, with their oddly shaped heads. Will the warriors bring any more slaves? Aelon asked the crone. If the blessing's pure enough, I," she answered, we're always needing more slaves. The icy, cold, crystal-clear water of Loch Beag swirled around Hunna feet, numbing him to mid-calf. Northwest across the Great Lake, the morning sun caught the top of the mountains, shining brilliantly off the snow-covered peaks, but Kahl remained in shade, the sun hadn't risen enough yet to get past the wall of great mountain looming dark behind him. The shadows of arc Spear often darkened the lake town of Foshkron, the wilderpine, both literally and figuratively. Cal dipped his ceramic jug into the water, sending silver streaks of minnows darting. Were at leaner times, these minnows would be an important food source, and Cal was quite practiced at catching them. But for now, he let them be. Cal savored the feel of the frigid waters against his leg. Autumn was on in full, and here on the high plateau, the season often met storms and snow. Today promised to be bright and glorious, though it was already quite warm, and Cal had been walking since before the dawn back and forth from his home to the food shed, to the market, to the lake, to wherever his wife Aniva had asked. Her belly swelled with their first child, due at the onset of winter, and that child, boy or girl, would be tall and strong, Cal knew. His anticipation at him. He couldn't wait to tightly swaddle his child's head, to stretch its skull to the heavens. He poured a bit of the cold water over his own head to rinse off the sweat. He poured a bit down his throat as well. He started to turn for home, but paused simply to enjoy the peaceful moment, the village waking up around him. Aniva wouldn't notice he'd delayed. He took a deep gulp of the water, savoring the soft morning air. Lochbeg's mood this fine day was glassy and bright. A gentle breeze pushed ripples across the surface, but not enough to cloud the water. And not just here in the shallows, Cal knew. Like every other adult in the village, he had spent many hours out on the deep waters, sometimes a mile from shore or more. Lochbeg was a mountain lake, wholly surrounded by the towering peaks of the Shrgarag Monad, the snow-haired mountains, and nearly a mile above the flat sands of Fasal Dakhlakh, the desert of black stones to the east. The waters were very deep, deeper than any lines the fishermen dared fashion to drop into them, for in the depths of Lakhbeeg lurked dangerous hunters, and one monster in particular that the people of the tribes living all about the lakeshore knew all too well. Visibility down into the water often meant the difference between life and death out on the ways of Loch For when the shadows of the beast passed far below, the fishermen knew to take up their oars and unfurl their small square sails and get fast to the shallows. Even boats of the other tribes, often rivals, would raise their flags of warning to the other villagers, and calls of "row" would echo out across the waters. Shifted. When the streams that fed Loch Bee ran fast with the spring melt or with heavy rains, and so stirred the lake bed into clouds, or when the warm southern winds excited a fog, the lake men knew to be fast off of the deep waters. For the monsters knew those days too, and too often hunted well the slowest boat. There had been a lot of fog this season, and so the supplies of Fashkran were running lower than desired with winter coming on fast. Cal looked down at the pretty dace again and nodded. The young man took another deep drink from his jug, dipped it into the shallow waters to refill it, and splashed back to shore, heading for home and his very pregnant wife. He noted a pair of elderly men sitting on low chairs woven of treated white birch bark, tied, and a pine frame, a very common sight down here by the lake this time of morning. Over in the cove, they've not been hit in years, one was saying as Kahl walked by, might be their turn. Though he was anxious to get home, Cal paused, intrigued. The winter neared, after all, and that meant the demon gods who lived on the mountain would almost certainly be out hunting soon. "'Nor the village to the cleft,' said another. "'Plenty of easy pickings there, if I'm to be asked,' said the first. "'The Usgar aren't asking,' the other said, and both nodded resignedly. "'The demon gods take as the demon gods see.' Cal grunted in acknowledgment as he walked by. These two old fisherfolk, one bald and the other with gray wisps of hair, scattered about his head, were too infirm to work on the boats, and so had become mainstays near the lake bank. Sitting back in their chairs, sometimes picking at the day's bones, and always full of chatter, mostly complaining, predicting the weather, the fishing routines, offering dire warnings of Uskar raiders, or of the lake monster. Still, despite their often glowing demeanor, they had become something of friends to Cal in these last few months, as he had remained ashore, as custom demanded, to help Aniva. The men and women of the lake village both worked equally, and Aniva was herself a fisherwoman of no small repute. Indeed, she and Cal had begun their relationship on a fishing boat, or rather on two fishing boats, when they had collided while jostling for position over a school of sunfish. Surely Aniva wanted to be back out there on the waters as much as Cal did, but in the village, as in most of the settlements about the lake, when a woman became pregnant, both she and her chosen mate were compelled to stay off of the boats until the child was born. Life here on the Amairus Plateau was dangerous. Life on the lake even more so, and children were the most precious gift that could be given to the tribe. All of that, however, didn't stop these two particular old-timers from giving Cal a lot of grief during his somewhat idle days wandering about the village. "'Ack, but we're old and brittle,' they usually greeted him, "'and we're not the balance to stand in a boat, "'and our fingers are no more for pointing straight. "'What's your excuse, boy?' "'They began that very litany as Cal walked away, "'but they paused as did he, "'when a third man strode in from the other direction, "'heading with purpose for the elders. "'Cal turned about as the man passed him by with a gruff nod. "'One returned by Cal, for he hardly knew this man, "'a trader with a skull that had not been shaped by wrapping.' who had come from across the lake and from lands far away. The tall and lanky man's appearance unsettled Cal. With his unshaped head, he was masquerading as a god, and not a god of blessing, like those that gave the fruits and the fish, but a demon god, an Usgar. The lakemen of Loch Beag would never think to allow themselves to resemble those awful demons of Fire Spear. "'What tidings, then, Talmage of the East?' the old gray-hair asked. "'Same grumbles as this morn?' "'The bald-headed elder added. "'I am telling you plainly,' Talmage replied. "'I have looked through my fortune-glass, and I have seen them. "'The mountain men are soon coming down from their high perch.' "'You're needing magic to tell you that?' "'The gray-hair answered with a snort. "'Could have put my finger up in the wintry wind and told you the same.' "'Talmage winced. "'It seemed to Cal as if he was in pain, "'as he brought his right arm up to hold aloft a strange item.' "'a brass ring with a clear crystal set in the middle, "'like some kind of lens, "'except that it was not concave like a lens, "'and it did not focus the sunlight shining upon it, "'but rather threw the light about in a thousand sparkles. "'I thought you should know,' he said. "'My fear is that they'll come straight down the mountain "'to Fashkran,' he said, "'which alarmed Cal until the two old men scoffed at the notion. "'We're always the closest to the Deem Haines "'and the bald-headed man, but we're the hardest to strike.' I've looked through your fortune glass, too, and do you know what i seen? The gray hair added. i seen whatever's on the other side, and that's all, but a bit stretched and blurry. He and his friends sniggered at that. Seven villages on the lake, and we're the strongest, he went on. The Deemhain are mean. I'll be giving you that much, but they're a bit mortal, at least, and they try to stay alive, aye? They got easier pickings north and south. You're sure to see it, too, aye? Water stilt? It took Cal a moment to realize that the old man was addressing him, and to further realize that he wasn't even trying to hide his eavesdropping. He flushed red, a bit embarrassed to be caught off guard, then nodded sharply. He's just trying to sell you that magic fortune glass, Cal said, dripping the word magic with sarcasm. But Talmage was shaking his head before Cal even finished. "Nay, it is not for sale, he said flatly. Of course it's not, said the gray-haired old-timer. Not for sale unless we're to make the right thick offer. His partner cackled at that, and the pair of them turned back to gaze at the lake and away from the trader. Cal started to turn away as well, but the man caught his gaze. A fair warning is all I can offer you, he said quietly. Pray you be wise and take it. I'm packing my canoe and paddling away from here long before nightfall. Cal gave him a curt nod, turned, and walked off. Something about the man's demeanor continued to play on Cal's sensibilities. Perhaps it was the surety with which Talmage had made his claim. It took Cal a half dozen steps to remember that the man was just a traitor, not a prophet. In another dozen, he had come within earshot of his house, and he could hear Aneva complaining loudly to the midwife about her lazy husband who probably went for a swim when he was supposed to be getting her water, and by the gods of the tallest pines, was she parched. By the time he crossed the threshold to be greeted, as both a savior with a relieved sigh and as late with an accompanying scowl, Cal had already forgotten the traitor and his warning. True to his word, Talmage was out of Fashkran in short order, paddling his canoe to the northwest along the shore, where lay the remaining three villages with which he hoped to trade. As soon as he was beyond the small harbor that sheltered Fashkran, and with the village's fleet still in sight far out on the lake talmage took out his seeing scope again he rolled the item over in his hand reverently and wistfully for this was the first thing he had secured when he had left his home those years before and he had traded most of his worldly possessions at that time for it it was indeed possessed of magic the gemstone magic of haunts the bear with a lens held within a brass ring upon that metal ring opposite each other set a pair of quartz gems, the source of the item's magic power. For those who could bring forth the magic, the clear lens would not distort the image on the other side, as the old Farshkran villager had remarked, but would instead fill with a vision, an honest look, at a faraway place. Talmage had looked up the mountain the previous day, and he had happened upon an Uskar war party. He couldn't be sure of where they were, but the thickness of the trees about them made Talmage certain that they weren't up at their high perch near the mountaintop. The trader brought the item up before his eyes once more and called upon the magic. The distorted image in the lens clouded over and was soon replaced with a mountain scene, a high outcropping of towering stone. He wheeled the magic about and found slopes filled with trees, even a wolf at one point lumbering about the forest. But no him. talmage continued a bit longer but was already growing weary. finally he brought the item to his lap and looked up at the wide and huge fire arc spear with his naked eye. far up on the slopes he could see the individual trees but nothing moving about them would be visible to him of course for he was too far. he glanced back to fashkran and thought of turning about. perhaps he should go back and impress upon the villagers the need to be alert Perhaps he could entice those on the shore into their boats, or even call the fishing fleet back into shore. But what had he really seen the previous day? Where were the Uskar warriors he had so briefly glimpsed? Were they even on this side of the mountain? For Firearc's spear was huge and round. And were they really coming down to attack a village? You fool, you're still on the edge because of that idiot badger, he scolded himself. And with a last glance at the fleet on the lake, and one in the direction of his favorite village of all, Talmage turned about and slid his paddle into the water, pressing on. Silence preceded them. Silence followed them. Their practiced footfalls skimmed the stones, barely settling down, making little sound, little impact. Their smooth run was aided by the green flecks in their crystalline weapons, the magical blessing lifting them, lightening them. These particular green flecks were most common in all of the crystals chosen for hunting and war parties because of this very enchantment. Deemhane footfalls leave no mark, coming silent, can no hark. Their figures remained blurred and indistinct, stone-gray clothing invisible against the mountainside, which was still deep in gloom with the early sun not yet climbing above the peaks. In this camouflage, too, the warriors were aided by the magical energy contained within their weapon tips, the crystals having also been selected for propensity of sparkling diamond chips, which the witches understood to bring forth a wispy darkness, shrouding and blurring the forms of those carrying the blessed item. Indeed, the crystals chose to tip the spears, had been carefully selected, then blessed by the singing of the witches, so that the weapons hummed with the song of Uskar the rituals had made those magical properties of the crystals accessible to the warriors ready to unleash devastating powers against any who felt the bite of an uskar spear untiring the uskar raiders flowed down the mountain guided by the first rays of dawn tickling the far side of the long lake uskar was not a large tribe the seven villages scattered about the banks of loch Beg were each more populous some with more than 5 times the number of uskar but the folk down here lived an easier life. They preferred bargain to battle, and floating on the water to running over stony jags up and down and along the mountainside, where one misstep could cost a man his life. To the Uskar then the lakemen were soft. And the folk along the shore of Loch Beak did not have the crystals. They did not have the blessings of the Uskar Rikin, who spoke for Uskar the crystal god, whose voice filled Uskar weapons with power and deadly magic. The mere sight of a single Uskar warrior would often send a full hunting party of Lakemen running. To the Lakemen, the Uskar were gods or demons. Even more than the crystal magic, that perception, one rooted in terror, was the greatest advantage of the war parties. Tealig understood. Tirelessly, the powerful young man led the warriors down the steep slopes of Fire Spear. Leaping to lower stones, legs bending expertly to absorb the shock of a ten-foot, even twenty-foot fall. Drops that would have shattered his bones if not for the magic in his spear. The magic had to flow fluidly, and could only do so with the wielder's full trust in the blessing that had been placed upon the crystal tip of his spear. A veteran of several raids and many hunts, Tealig had that confidence, without the slightest hesitation. Nor did he need to concentrate on the crystalline tip of his spear, as so many others did, particularly the younger warriors would. He felt the magic and simply let it flow through him. So his pace continued, even quickened. He thought of the last image in his mind of Marin, the woman upon the pyre, being buried under the kindling she would set ablaze. He had noted the telltale white glow about the Uskar Rikin, her magical shield against the fiery bite. Even as he thought about it, Taelic's hand went to his belt to feel the stone tucked in his pocket inside the waistline. He had thought of grabbing it back then at the ceremony with its magical power, or rather its ability to defeat magic. He might have stripped that shield from Marin. She would have cooked in her own conjured flames. A smile came to his face. Yes, that would have been enjoyable. He heard the grunts behind him as the two dozen raiders tried to keep pace. But that only waned Taalig's smile. He had just passed his twentieth year. He basked in the glory of the coven's song. He had a special understanding of Uskar, of magic. He was invincible. If the others were not, that was their failing, not his. He charged ahead to a rounded boulder that he knew to be the top of a rocky outcropping. Hardly slowing, Taalig went over, dropping fifteen feet to the steeply sloped, looser dirt in an acrobatic roll. And he thought of the ceremony, of Marin who had so often tormented him, and he grabbed at the secret amethyst-crusted sunstone he had tucked away and called upon its power before he even realized his action. That nearly cost him dearly, he understood, for he was suddenly heavier, bouncing more roughly. He let go of the pocket, and he kept rolling, absorbing the shock as he went, hugging close to his spear, so that the magical green flecks of a stone called Malachite would again make him lighter, And lessen the impact he had left the outcropping far behind by the time he was able to stop and regain his footing that he might properly glance back he saw the others coming in a tumbling line some more gracefully than others none as smoothly as his own descent there would be many minor wounds here he knew but nothing that should slow his war party while the battle lust coursed through their blood even as taelig nodded at that thought though he heard a cry from the darkness up above a broken note. Surely it was one of the new warriors, he understood, for the high-pitched shriek sounded like a boy who was barely a man. This was the first war party for four of the raiders, an unusually high number. They were the most likely to die, of course. In the harsh heritage of Uskar, experience had to be earned through the highest of stakes, or it was worth nothing at all. The war party leader blew an angry growl and started back up the slope, "'following the whispers of several voices, "'including more than one telling the broken young warrior "'to be brave and stifle his cries. "'When he got to the scene, "'Tayleek waded through the gathered circle of men. "'There squirmed the young warrior, Agmor by name, "'one leg broken so badly that the bone "'was sticking out through the skin, "'one shoulder so far back "'that it was almost certainly out of its proper joint. "'He was drifting down and just fell,' one man said." ''Hard,'' said another. ''He forgot the blessing,'' the first replied. Te'a wasn't so certain, but he didn't speak his concern, surely, for that concern was regarding his own action. With his call to the stone, had he left behind a small residual area of countering magic to defeat any blessing? Perhaps this young man lying before him, bones sticking through the skin of his leg, had been felled by Te'a action. The twinge of guilt didn't last, however. The others had come through. Tayalig had pressed through the interruption of the magic in his own spear. This failure was still Agmor's fault. Tayalig knelt beside Agmor and tucked a strip of hide deep into Agmor's mouth, muffling his cries. In the pre-dawn light, the veteran could see lots of blood upon the young one's face, and it seemed like much of it had come from inside him, and not from superficial cuts. "'Whose spear is strong with warmth?' Tayalig asked the others. Though most held the green flecks and the sparkling diamond chips, none of the weapons were identical, with varying hues hidden with each crystal tip, offering magical accents to the blessings of the coven. Off to the side, a pair of men compared their javelins, nodding, then decided upon the weapon strongest with the warm healing offered by the grey flecks within the crystal, a wedstone. The warrior hustled forward and presented the weapon to Tealig. The War Party leader hugged it close and felt its power, then nodded and gave the gift-giver the spear of the broken young Agmor. He placed the spear, strong with the warmth of healing, across Agmor's chest and pulled the young man's arms up to hug it. "'You are very hurt,' Te'a said matter-of-factly. "'Without this, you will die. With it, you may die anyway, if you are not strong enough.' He looked up and around a bit and gave a little laugh. "'Even if you are strong enough to gather the healing warmth,' he added with a wicked smile, "'out here, bathed in blood in the morning hours, "'there are hungry wolves and bears and great cats that will eat you while you still live.' "'That brought many nods from the men about the broken young warrior. "'Unless you remain strong enough to fight them off,' Tealeg warned. "'Poor Agmor's eyes opened wide, and he shook his head in a desperate plea "'and began issuing a series of pitiful wails.' Taalig just pressed the spear in tighter and put his vi- and put his face very close to that of the wounded warrior. "'Are you a boy or a man?' he asked coldly. Agmor seemed to relax a bit, his pride forcing him to battle back against the terror. "'The lake is not far,' Taalig explained. "'We will pass by this place before the sun has dived into the far waters of the west.' If you are strong enough to pull the warmth of healing from the blessed spear, you may live, and we will carry you back to the coven for care. You will know no shame for your fall. If you are strong enough to live and kill a wolf that comes to feast, then perhaps Agmor will find glory yet this day. We cannot leave him, another voice sounded, and the warriors all gasped, and Tealig was up to his feet in an instant. He noted the speaker, another of the first-year raiders, and he offered the dark-haired lad a comforting nod as he approached. "'We should bring him back now,' the youngster was saying meekly. "'Come back another day.' He ended flat on his back with the wind blasted out of his lungs, compliments of a sudden and powerful kick from Taelig. Before he had even recovered his wits, the impetuous and foolish young man found the tip of a spear hovering a finger's breadth from his eye. That silenced him, certainly.' And when he eased into a more submissive pose, Taelig moved the spear aside, reached down, and yanked the young man to his feet with frightening strength. Over to the side, Agmor groaned and looked that way. Taelig began to appreciate the extent of the unfortunate young warrior's injuries, for Agmor could hardly hold the spear, let alone find the power to draw any magic from it. Talig hated the thought of losing a young warrior. The tribe was not large, and every able body mattered. But he could see then, particularly when Agmore began coughing up more blood, that this one would very likely not be alive when they returned. But perhaps he could find some gain here, in this loss, Talig thought. He turned to the impetuous young man. What is your name? Braith. The boy of Imric. Someone said. "Imric." Talig asked. Sounding somewhat impressed, for that man had gained a fierce reputation, Braith straightened his shoulders and seemed to garner some strength from the recognition of his bloodline. Agmor groaned and vomited blood once more. The wound is mortal, Taialik told Braith, and he grabbed the young man's spear and pulled it, and Braith's arm out in front, pointing the weapon and the wielder towards Agmore. You do it. Even in the dim light and the deep shadow of the huddled mountain, Ta could see the blood drain from the young man's face. All about, warriors gasped, and one began to argue, but was quickly hushed by the others. "'He will lie in pain throughout the day,' Te'a League said when Braith hesitated. "'Would you let your cowardice cause him that terrible death?' "'Imrik,' someone in the back reminded. Braith straightened, his shoulders again and took up his spear more forcefully as Taelig let go of the shaft. Braith strode over and flipped the spear, and with only the slightest of hesitation, stabbed it down at poor Agmor. Or tried to, for Tealeg kicked him again just as he began the killing blow, sending him tumbling aside. Braith came back to his feet angrily and in clear confusion, and only calmed when others cheered him and called out the name of his father and moved to pat him on the shoulder. You would have done it, Taelig said. "'You lead the war party,' a confused Braith replied. "'You told me to. "'But Agmor is your friend, and you would have killed him. "'What are we without loyalty?' "'I would not see him suffer,' the young man stuttered, "'and Taelig offered again the wicked smile, "'seeming very pleased at Braith's obvious discomfort. "'You. You said he would die,' Braith meekly argued. "'Taelig laughed at him, pushing him away, then fell over Agmor,' pressing the healing spear tight against the fallen youth's chest. Ignore your pain, he whispered harshly into Agmore's ear. Defeat your fear. Nothing matters but this blessed weapon. It alone can save you, but only if nothing matters but this blessed weapon. The war party leader stood back up and spun on his heel. We go, he told the others, and led them away. Tealig's dark eyes gleamed as he turned back towards the lake, Towards the smoke of the cooking fires of the village directly below. The smoke would be darker soon and thicker, so much thicker. And all the villages of Lachbeeg would see it and know that the Uskar had come, and they would be afraid. They thought the Uskar godlike. Tealig felt godlike.